like to show you this short video uh, for starters. Yeah, this, this doesn't look good. It's the hazards of pulling it live off the internet. <laughs> what do you think there, guys? Technical geniuses, how we doing? We, can, we, uh, can we bufferize that or are we, are we dead in the water? <clears throat> you know, and I haven't even started yet, so wait till I get hold of this. Uh, you can imagine what's going to happen. Oh, nice.
The question that I want you to come away from that is, is a serious one, believe it or not, and that is, why would you want to oppose Jesus? Bart Ehrman, who's being shredded by Stephen Colbert in the video, he's a professor of religious studies over at UNC in Chapel Hill. As a teenager, he, he became an evangelical Christian, much like you and I. He then went through a period where for 15 years he described himself as a liberal Christian and now he ends up as an agnostic who seems to devote his time and energy to undermining the historic teaching of Christianity concerning Jesus. Why, why would anyone do that? In our continuing study of Matthew today, we are going to encounter some of the most severe opposition to Jesus in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus how to destroy. You could read that, murder him. Just a couple verses later, it says, all the people were amazed and they said, can this be the son of David? And um, I think I have the wrong verse there. The, the Pharisees said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The Pharisees were a religious party in Jesus' day who were experts in keeping and even protecting the law. Okay? And here, they find themselves, these law keepers, so at odds with Jesus that they seek to kill him and they say that he's in league with the devil himself. How do you end up there? And most of us are not there, anywhere close to there, or we wouldn't be here this morning. But I wonder if there are not little seeds of the Pharisees in us all, if, if there aren't lesser ways that maybe we don't oppose Jesus, but we resist him. Seeds of opposition take root in us Every time we disobey or we refuse to trust in him, are those not little rebellions against Jesus? Why? Why would anyone oppose Jesus? Why would we, even in these, what we would say are lesser ways? Well, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, and I'll pray for us, and we'll walk through the lion's share of this passage together today and see, seeking answers there. God, be kind to us now. May your spirit use your word to humble us and to exalt your son, Jesus, that we might not worship and follow a Jesus of our own making, but the true Jesus, worthy of our wholehearted devotion. Lord, may, may your spirit find no resistance in us today, but glad-hearted followership of your son, and we ask this in his name, amen. Chapter 12 starts this way, at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, they began to pluck heads of grain to eat, but when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And so the conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees in our passage start at a lower level, okay? They're aimed at his disciples for a violation of of the protective fences that the Pharisees had erected around the law of Moses to protect it from violation. Okay. And when you read this scene, though, you get a sense that the Pharisees are stalking Jesus. 
Jesus and his friends out on a Sabbath walk. They get hungry. They start picking some grain to eat. And all of a sudden, jumping up out of the wheat field, Pharisees, aha, gotcha. <laughs> Violated our laws. No harvesting on the Sabbath. Uh, clearly, this and ensuing encounters with the Pharisees have a sense of a trap being set for Jesus. They accused Jesus of being a lawbreaker, a Sabbath breaker, to be specific. And Sabbath was for them, it was huge. It, it, was, it was one of their great values. They did tons of writing about the Sabbath. Um, it was, in the language of some, a boundary marker. John Ortberg puts it this way. He says, James Dunn notes that in first century A.D., when Jesus lived, a vast amount of rabbinic writing focused on circumcision, dietary laws, and Sabbath keeping. That's what the rabbis were writing about. Now, he says, this seems odd because no devout rabbi would have said these matters were at the heart of the law. They knew the core of the law. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So why the focus, he says, on these three practices? The answer, he says, involves what might be called identity or boundary markers. Groups have a tendency to be exclusive. Insiders want to separate themselves from outsiders, so they adopt boundary markers. They're highly visible, relatively superficial practices, matters of vocabulary or dress or style whose purpose is to distinguish between those inside a group and those who are outside. He gives us some examples. He says, for example, imagine you're driving through the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco in the 1960s. If you came to a stoplight and a Volkswagen van pulled up next to you, plastered with peace signs and make love, not war bumper stickers, driven by a long-haired, tie-dyed, granny glasses wearer, you would have known you were driving next to a hippie. He says, if it were the 1980s and you were to see a BMW with a driver wearing Gucci shoes, a Rolex wax, and moose hair, nibbling on brie, you would know that you were driving next to a yuppie. He says, bikers, too, are recognizable by their preference in fashion color, black, fabric, leather, skin ornamentation, tattoo, and beverage of choice. Great taste, less filling. Farmers, doctors, politicians, and rock stars all have their own ways of distinguishing who's in their fraternity or sorority. With this in mind, he says, the importance of circumcision, dietary laws, Sabbath keeping in the first century becomes clear. They were boundary markers. The highly visible, relatively superficial practices that allowed people to distinguish who was inside and who was outside the family of God. But he says, what's worse is the insiders became proud and judgmental towards outsiders. They practice what might be called a boundary-oriented approach to spiritual life. Just look at people, and you can tell who are the sheep and who are the goats. Now, I think of it like throwing darts. In our house, we have a battery-operated dartboard. It's got those plastic darts, and, and the hangs on the door upstairs, but all around the dartboard, on the sheetrock and on the door itself, are these little dents little tiny dents where people miss the dartboard, okay? We're like eight feet away, and certain people in my family who shall go unnamed miss the dartboard regularly. It's like a little da -da 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 all over the wall. So I've given up on the bullseye. I'm just like, hit the board, okay? <laughs> just 
Just get it in there. And my focus now is no longer on the center. It's on the perimeter. Just get on. Just get in. It happens to us as Christians when we focus on Christian activities, what we do to be good people, go to church, read your Bible, be in a small group, serve the kids. When those become the center for us, they become our focus rather than the real center, who is Jesus, loving and honoring and communing with Jesus. That's the center. Ortberg describes modern-day boundary markers this way. He says, religious boundary markers change from generation to generation. He says, the Christian college I attended in the late 70s still had, in effect, a rule against the performance of jazz music on campus, a rule instituted in the early 20th century. Fifty years later, no one was willing to rescind it in fear of appearing to compromise essential beliefs. The irony, he says, is that students were perfectly free to listen to punk rock or heavy metal. But Louis Armstrong was off limits. On Sundays, he says, the tennis courts were locked up. But for some reason, the volleyball court was left accessible. As a tennis player, I always maintained that volleyball was the more worldly of the two sports because it was closely associated with California and was often played on the beach. (laughs) See, when our focus becomes the fence what we should and shouldn't do as Christians. More so than loving and serving and communing with Jesus, we become vulnerable to the Pharisees' misplaced focus. When when what we should and shouldn't do becomes central, Jesus is marginalized, even subordinated, and from that place, he can be opposed. So the Pharisees, they devised all kinds of laws to protect the laws. They had 39 categories of work that were prohibited on the Sabbath. One of those was you couldn't bury a burden on the Sabbath, couldn't bear a burden, excuse me, on the Sabbath. What is a burden? They had to figure out what a burden was, and a burden was anything weighing more than two dried figs. It's not in the Bible. It's a fence to protect the Bible. Scholars say that even ancient Jewish tradition acknowledges that. They say the rules about the Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair, for the scripture is scanty while the rules we make are many. And the Pharisees said that Jesus' disciples had just transgressed their boundary marker. No reaping on the Sabbath. So Jesus says to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? So what Jesus does now in response to the Pharisees, he raises two but whatabouts to help them rethink their position. The first but whatabout is but whatabout King David. King David, who when he and his men were very hungry, ate bread that only sanctified priests were to eat, contrary to the law. But as Jesus points out, the Old Testament does not condemn David. What about that? Jesus is setting them up now. We'll we'll, we'll return to this. 
He raises in the meantime another but what about. He says, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? So Jesus now asks, but what about the temple? The priests always work on the Sabbath in the temple, violating the command not to work on the Sabbath, but they are not guilty, Jesus says. Why? He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Here, like right before your eyes. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man, Jesus says, is Lord of the Sabbath. So, the priests violate the Sabbath to serve the temple, and that's okay because the need to serve the temple trumps the Sabbath regulations. There's something greater than the Sabbath, worship in the temple. And Jesus is now saying there's something greater than the temple that's here, and that something would be him. Jesus is greater than the temple, and the temple is greater than the Sabbath. So Jesus is thereby Lord of the Sabbath. He says in verse 7, if you, if you understood the heart of God, what mattered most to God, that mercy matters more than sacrifice, the heart matters more than the ritual performed, then you would not have jumped out and yelled, gotcha, at my disciples. One greater than the temple is here. The Lord of the Sabbath is here. This is a God-like claim. In the Old Testament, God was Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is claiming to be Lord of all, Lord of the temple, Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of the law. He is to be Lord, our Lord, your Lord, my Lord. If the Pharisees had gotten who Jesus was presenting himself to be, that he's greater than the temple, the Lord of the Sabbath, God himself, they wouldn't oppose him. That'd be crazy. Who'd oppose God? But they do. Maybe on a much lesser scale, we do too. Why is that? I think it's because they were focused on the fence, not the center, not the bullseye. They missed Jesus. Don't miss Jesus. There's another encounter with, Jesus, with the Pharisees that follows right from that. He went on from there. He entered their synagogue, it says. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Again, you want to shout out, don't do it, Jesus, it's a trap. Okay? <laughs> They're waiting for you. Not even sure if this man should have been allowed in the synagogue with his withered deformity. They are trying to get Jesus to violate their Sabbath regulations again. See, it, the only medical treatment you could do on the Sabbath was emergency life-saving treatment. So it's like the emergency room was open, but the rest of the hospital was forbidden. Okay. But Jesus... Jesus will not submit to their rules even for a few hours. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, and the idea is just one sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? 
How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy, just like the other. Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater here. He says, if saving a sheep seems reasonable, how much more a man? Dale Bruner says, Jesus asks, if one of them with only one little sheep should find that sheep in a hole, even on the Sabbath day, wouldn't they immediately pull it out? And in his gospel, Luke, in chapter 14, he he records that Jesus even more poignantly asked if any of you had a son that happened to fall in a well, would you not pull him out at once, even on the Sabbath? Jesus is asking his critics, in effect, he says, would you shout down the hole, son, could you wait for just another 10 or 11 hours till sunset, and then I'll be able to help you with a good conscience? And the answer to Jesus' question, of course, is, No one would do that. And so because mercy matters more than sacrifice in God's economy, Jesus heals the man. And this is a good thing, right? You think the synagogue erupts in applause, Jesus is put on their shoulders, and he's carried out the hero. That's not how they responded. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him to destroy him, to murder him. What has happened to them? How did they end up here? Opposing Jesus to the point of plotting to kill him. And for what? Because he healed a man on the Sabbath? How do you end up in a place like this? A place of opposing the good and mighty king rather than delighting in him and his work? I think they they were all about the edge, not the center on their rules above God's heart, on the details and the rituals, rather than the center. They loved sacrifice more than mercy, and then their pride came into play, and they had to protect it, and their power, their love for power came in because they were in charge of this system. Because they focused on the externals, they missed Jesus. Don't miss Jesus. He's the center of the target. Paul Tripp has a a new book out. It promises to be very helpful for those of us who are pastors. We're working through it as a staff. It's called Dangerous Calling, and he tells a story in it about a friend who is an avid rose gardener. He says his rose garden was the community's most beautiful and healthy and the widest variety of roses. He did everything humanly possible to prune, protect, and nourish his roses to maximum health and productivity. During the season, he'd work many hours every day on his bushes. He did it with discipline and perseverance. He didn't mind the early mornings and the gardening that repeatedly took him into the night. His wife thought he was a little nuts, and his friends wondered what it was about roses that hooked him, but nothing seemed to weaken his resolve. He knew the URL of every rose bush site. He was on a first-name basis with all the local nursery proprietors. And then Tripp writes that one Friday morning... He was looking out the window as he washed his hands at the kitchen sink, and it struck him all of a sudden. There's one thing he hadn't done in years with his roses, and that was to enjoy them. He had studied the world of roses. He had cultivated the soil around his roses. He had carefully pruned his bushes. He had given bunches of roses to others. He had fed and watered his roses. He had long discussions with other rosers. He had spent time in the local nurseries. 
but he hadn't taken the time to enjoy the fruits of his labor. He had become an expert, but he had not been moved nor changed by the display of beauty that was the object of all his efforts. And so he resolved that that day he was going to sit in front of his rose bushes and enjoy them. And he sat there for hours. And he was awestruck by the precise and delicate architecture of each blossom. He couldn't believe how each yellow petal wasn't really one shade of yellow, but actually a wash of a hundred different yellow hues coursing across it that gave it its yellow appearance. He told me that it may seem weird to say, but his hours before that bush changed him. Those hours gave him back his sight. They made him thankful. They made him smile at the level of his heart. They filled him with mystery and joy, and most importantly, they caused him to worship. And Tripp says wisely, you see, those bushes were never intended to be an end in themselves. Those bushes were designed to be a means to an end. The glory of the bushes is an ultimate glory. It's sign glory. Like every other created thing, all creation is meant to be a finger pointing us to the ultimate glory, the only glory that can ever satisfy the human heart, the glory of God. He says, my friend was a rose expert, but he had seen neither the sign nor what the sign pointed to. Expert, but unchanged. Expert, but without awe. Expert, but not driven to worship. Expert, but lacking in joy. Expert, but not very thankful. It was a sad state of affairs for a man who professed to love roses. And then he says something very important to a large portion of our congregation. I'd like you to listen very closely to this. Could it be, he says, that this is very close to what a seminary education might do to its students? Is it not possible for seminary students to become experts in a gospel they are not being exposed and changed by? Could it be that rather than having as our mission students who have mastered the book, our goal should be graduating students who have been mastered by the God of the book? And sometimes I think we we can do this with so many good things, things as good as the gospel. You know, we say, and very much rightly so, we want to live a gospel-centered life. We want to be a gospel-centered church. And so what we end up trying to do is put at the center right ideas about Jesus. Right thinking about Jesus. So if I just preach to myself the gospel, that's the center. The center, John Piper issued a corrective for us in his book title, God is the gospel. The purpose of the gospel ideas and gospel truth is to take us into communion with Jesus. It's not enough to just have right thinking about Jesus. He is risen. He's not dead. He is here to commune with us. So all our preaching of ourselves the gospel, which is so good, and all our right thinking about the gospel, which is so beautiful, is needed to move us into the center, the bullseye, who is the risen Jesus, whom we commune with. Don't miss him. Don't miss Jesus. Don't settle for sign glory when ultimate glory ultimate communion with a risen Savior is available to you. 
Jesus responds to their assassination plots this way. Aware of this, he withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Listen to this amazing prophecy about Jesus. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I'll put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles, the nations will hope. Jesus withdraws from the conflict, but continues his ministry of mercy to the least of these. And in doing so, he fulfills Isaiah's portrait of the Messiah, not just as a warrior king, but as a suffering servant. And it's a, it's a beautiful fulfillment. Dale Bruner describes a reed as a symbol of weakness and a broken reed, a weakness that borders on dissolution, something good for nothing, trash. Jesus shall especially cherish broken people, Isaiah is saying. What, a, what an amazing portrait of Jesus. Don't miss Jesus. He's the center. He should be your focus, your treasure, your supreme delight. Don't miss Jesus. But above all, don't reject Jesus. Because a demon-possessed, oppressed man was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So in response to more acts of powerful mercy, the Pharisees oppose him again. This time saying, essentially, he is in league with the devil. This is the second time they've made this wicked accusation. Back in chapter 9, Pharisees said it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. And Jesus now goes to great length to show the evil folly behind this accusation. He says, knowing their thoughts, Jesus says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Jesus points out, basically, that Satan is not going to oppose himself. That would be counterproductive, plain and simple. Even the devil isn't that dumb. He goes on and says, if I cast out demons by the Beelzebul, Pharisees, by whom do your sons cast them out? Thereby they will be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So turnabout, Jesus is saying, is fair play. Jesus says, what about your exorcists who are doing essentially the same work as me? Are they in league with Satan too? Are you in league with the devil because you do the same work I do? But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast them out and not Satan, because I've just demonstrated that Satan would not do this work, then the kingdom has come, the king has come, and Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah king sent by God. I am, I am the one. 
He goes on and says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Strong man being Satan. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Someone greater than the Sabbath is here. Someone greater than the temple is here. Someone greater than the strong man than the devil is here, Jesus is saying. And and this last assertion is really good news. Jesus has plundered the strong man's house and he's plundered Satan of his prized possessions, people. Jesus has set them free, just like he did this man. Satan is a bound foe. Though the Bible describes him as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, our Messiah is greater. Martin Luther said it in words that we've sung repeatedly. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe, his craft, power, are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth, Lord of armies, his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world, with devils filled, should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Jesus is that word. Satan is a bound foe, Jesus says. Our God is greater. And so Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So the lines have been drawn Neutrality towards Jesus is a myth. Matt Woodley says that Jesus draws a line in the sand with this verse. That's why it's so dangerous to um, insinuate that Jesus is in league with Satan. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is at war with Beelzebul. Jesus is trying to enter, burglarize, ransack Satan's house and haul away his most precious possession, human souls. Satan wants to cripple, enslave, and destroy human beings. Jesus wants to set them free through his power. There is no neutrality in these two agendas. So my, my, my neighbor in the office, Rob Craig, my favorite evangelist, he is, uh, he's telling me he's trying to get customer service for something, internet service or phone or something. And you know how it is when you're online, the little, little window pops up and says, would you like to chat with someone? And of course, Rob Craig has never turned on a chat in his life. <laughs> so sure, I'll talk to somebody. And somebody pops up and he starts the conversation, she starts the conversation, and Rob says, well, where are you? And she says, I'm in India. And he says, I've been to India. And she says, well, why'd you come to India? And Rob, being Rob Craig, says, I went to India to tell people about Jesus. And she replies back, I love Jesus. And he said, well, tell me how you became a Christian. She says, oh, I'm a Hindu. Well, how can you be a Hindu and love Jesus, Rob says. And she says, oh, we have many gods. So you can't be neutral towards Jesus. 
He can't be just one more in the rotation of gods you trust in from time to time. He came to be Lord of all. He has come to be king. He must be king. He must be your king. He will not settle for anything less. Jesus makes a really uncooperative hobby. He demands more. He demands all. Our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now what follows next is one of the most amazing statements of grace in the Bible and one of the most terrifying expressions of judgment. Look at it closely with me. Therefore I tell you, Jesus says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And right away we, we read that and we go, whoa, what is this unforgivable sin thing? You know, woo, 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 unforgivable sin, that's like all we see. But don't miss. Don't, don't let that rob you of the amazing, incredible statement of grace that comes first. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. You know, we, we're like students that get a 99 on a test. What do you do? What did I miss? Where's the one thing? Forget the 99 I got right. What's the one thing I missed? Don't do that here. Treasure the 99. All your sins and blasphemies will be forgiven, Jesus says. Drink in the immensity of mercy and grace in those words, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. That's stunning. Mark Brunson tells a really insightful story. He talks about a man who lived in England, came over to the United States to go to a resort for several months, and he wanted to bring along his Rolls Royce for the trip. Okay. This is not your average vacation, obviously. So he had his Rolls-Royce carefully packaged and shipped overseas. While visiting the U.S., something happened to the car, mechanical failure of some sort. So he called over to England, explained his problem to the company, and Rolls-Royce told him, that's fine, within 48 hours we'll have a mechanic with the auto parts there to fix it for you. So they put a mechanic on a plane with the necessary car parts and flew him to the United States. He worked on the car in the parking lot of the resort, fixed it in good time, got on a plane, flew back to England. The man happily drove his Rolls Royce for the rest of his time in the U.S., then he packaged it back up, put it on a ship, sent it back home to England. Now, almost a year later, after the man returned to England, he discovered he'd never gotten a bill from Rolls Royce. So he wrote the company a letter saying, this date last year, there was something wrong with my Rolls Royce, and you flew a mechanic over to help me, and you fixed it, but I've never received the bill. If you would find that bill in your office, I'd be happy to pay for your efforts at fixing my car. And he received a letter back from Rolls-Royce that simply said, in the files at the headquarters of Rolls-Royce, there is no such account saying anything has ever been wrong with a Rolls-Royce anywhere that you speak of. <laughs> Jesus' forgiveness of your sins is that good. It's that complete. No 
record kept of any sin or blasphemy. It's all been forgiven. That's good news. Now, there is an exception clause. There is something called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And theologians, after much reading, I've learned, are not in precise agreement here because Jesus offers us no precise definition. What we can say is that these statements seem to be prompted most pointedly by the accusations of the Pharisees with their attribution of the work of God to the devil. John Piper says, note very carefully that Jesus does not say that these scribes have committed the unforgivable sin. He hears them attribute his power over demons to Satan instead of the Holy Spirit, and he says, whatever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. It's a warning to the scribes, he says. Maybe they have committed the unforgivable sin. Maybe they haven't. But when we see the work of the Holy Spirit and call it the work of Satan, they're at least on the brink of never-ending guilt. Perhaps they have even fallen over the edge. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, he says, puts you beyond repentance and therefore beyond forgiveness. Jesus is saying all blasphemies that you repent of will be forgiven except blasphemy against the Spirit. He's saying all blasphemies that you repent of will be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven because it puts you beyond repentance. You won't be able to repent of it. What is it, he says? The unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an act of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws forever with his convicting power so that we are never able to repent and be forgiven. And you may be wondering, have I committed this sin? You may be thinking back to something foolish or rash that you did or said. And so I would just say, are you willing to repent of this sin? Do you believe and welcome the work of Jesus on your behalf? If so, I think you're good. This is not your problem. But you might respond and say, but I cursed him. Remember Peter? who denied him with curses and yet was forgiven. Dale Bruner helps all of us in pastoral work. He says the great or said the correct pastoral approach has always been if you are worried that you have committed the sin against the Holy Spirit, you have not. For that spirit of this sin is an unworried adamancy. It is impenitence, the unwillingness to repent, that is at the root of the unforgivable sin. It is not careless acts. It is a hardened state. So let's go back to the beginning. What about Dr. Bart Ehrman? Has he committed this sin in denying Christ and teaching others to deny him as well? Personally, I doubt it, but I do not know. It's not put upon us to make this call. I only know that I'm greatly concerned for him and that he's far closer than I wish anyone was to this eternal guilt. There is, in this fearful state of unmitigated judgment, a great incentive to pray for and speak with those we meet who vigorously deny Christ. That, that God in his mercy might use us to rescue those who are perishing. Don't miss Jesus. Okay. 
Don't miss Jesus. Just from our passage alone, listen to the description of Jesus. He's the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath, one greater than the temple, who values men and women and heals them. He fulfills prophecy. He's the chosen servant, the beloved of God, with whom God's soul is well pleased. The Spirit of God is upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He's not a loud quarreler shouting in the streets. He's compassionate to the suffering ones, and he'll bring justice and victory. In his name, all nations will hope. He knows the thoughts of men, and he casts out demons because he has bound the strong man, who is Satan himself, and he forgives all our blasphemies and sins against him. Don't miss Jesus. Okay. I have yet to encounter, I think, anyone who has said this as eloquently as has Dr. S.M. Lockridge, and I'll let you hear him say it himself.
Would you stand with me? Don't miss Jesus, okay? He is the center. Nothing else in your life matters more than Jesus, the Father and the Spirit. Nothing matters more. Don't oppose Jesus. Don't reject him. Don't resist him. Are you missing Jesus such that you are neutral to him, indifferent to him, passive about him? Or is he your great love, your great hope, your great treasure? Today, we want to close our service with a chance to repent of getting wayward, of getting distracted, of focusing on the fence when we should be right at the bullseye, right at the heart of the matter, who is Jesus, our Savior King, the good and mighty King. As the team leads us in a time of worship of that King, draw near to Him. If you want to come down front, our elders and our ministry leaders, our pastors are available to pray with you, just to pray God's blessing of the nearness of Christ, the centrality of Christ, the supremacy of Christ in your life. Let's worship Him with our voices and with our lives.